Well, we are certainly in the season of, of Thanksgiving. But, you know, I think a lot of coaches and stuff like this, I'll tell you something. They'll say this. They'll go, look, really, if you're going to focus on things to improve on, you should not take things you're weak at. Take things that you're strong at and improve those. Focus on your strengths and improve them. And so, you know what? We all know how to grumble, don't we? So, so I had a thought, what, what if we want to become a better grumbler? Better at grumbling. You know, what could we do? Well, first thing would be this. Make sure you are the center of your life. All right? You need to be the center of your thoughts. If you don't look out for number one, right, who's going to do that? Secondly, make sure you always remember the wrongs others have done to you. Maybe keep a journal. Write them down. You know, maybe you just got to meditate on those things if you're going to cultivate the bitterness you're going to need to really grumble. Or another thing, you can try to use negative terminology in your words as much as possible, right? So use words like atrocious, irritating, stupid, you know, to keep that vocab going. And then, and then another thing you could do, do everything you can to live consistently distracted. So here's the thing, thankful people, they usually can't or they, they refuse to think back on the past and remember all the, again, the wrongs done to them, the bad circumstances, etc. Or, or they don't worry enough about the future. You know, they don't think ahead and go, man, that's going to be bad. That's going to be bad. So, so always try to keep yourself in that mind frame of being distracted by the past that's wronged you or the future that looks terrible. And by the way, if you have to pray, you can do that. But make sure your prayers are always about what you want. Focus in on that. Okay, I can't go any farther. I'm sorry. <laughs> if you're visiting today and you're going, so how do I get out of this room without anybody knowing I was ever here? Um, yeah, obviously that is not what we're here to do today. Right? Um, no, it is all too easy for us to complain. But we are here today to give thanks. That's what we need to grow in. And yes, we are natural complainers. And many of those things I listed off earlier, you're going, I'm a master at those things. Maybe you are. Uh, thankfully, there's hope for us. And the Bible shows us, especially if you're here today and you're a follower of Jesus, you have so much to be thankful for. So much. And so today we're going to be roaming all over the place in the scriptures, and we're really going to be calling our minds to think more clearly and more fully about who God is and what he's done. So we're going to be zooming through. You're going to need to put your thinking caps on. You're going to be putting on your, you know, I'm flipping through the scriptures. You're going to need to track today. I'm, I'm not saying you never track usually, by the way. Sorry. I'm not saying. But today we're going to need to really focus on that um, because we want to grow in this way of giving thanks. And, and so as we look at that, um, we're going to see several principles. The, the first one would be this. We grow in gratitude as we pursue God personally. Pursue God personally. And, and we see that in a lot of different places in the scripture, but, but um, Psalm, Psalm 105 is one of those spots. I'd encourage you to turn there to Psalm 105. Um, go ahead and stand if you would and follow along as I read. Here's what, here's what Psalm 105 declares. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. 
Sing to him, sing praises to him, speak of all his wonders, glory in his holy name. Let the heart of those who seek the Lord be glad. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his face continually. Remember his wonderful deeds which he's done, his marvels and the judgments uttered by his mouth. O seed of Abraham, his servants, sons of Jacob, his chosen ones. He is the Lord, our God. His judgments are in all the earth. Lord, we pray that you would uh, open our hearts to grow as a people to be truly more grateful. Not just because it's a good thing to do, not just because it's a seasonal thing to do, but because of who you actually are. And, and who we are in Jesus. We pray, Lord, that you would work this in us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and take your seats. Notice in verse 4, we've got the word seek happen twice there. And it's preceded in verse 3 by the word seek again. So there's a threefold emphasis. Seek, seek, seek. What's it mean? You chase after, pursue. Uh, Go, go towards, run towards God. But it's not just a, a kind of like, yeah, I'm looking for something. I lost my keys. I got to find it. No, it's a determined pursuit of walking, running, yearning for and after God. And it's personal. It's to know him. We've talked before about how in John chapter 17, this is eternal life, Jesus says, to know you, the only true God. Personal knowledge, not just academic knowledge, a knowledge that, that comes from person to person, heart to heart, face to face, being with this one. And God invites us into that through Jesus. He calls us to that, uh, which is why we often talk about what it means to try to know Jesus personally and walk with him. So, so in, in knowing him, you'll notice the psalmist then talks about Abraham and Jacob and other things. are going, why is, why is he doing that? He's outlining the history of redemption. Through the rest of the psalm, he'll do the same thing. And we find that he highlights God's character. And so if we're thinking about that, the very first thing he highlights, you'll notice in verse 4, is seek the Lord and notice his strength. His strength, God's strength. So in, in the spirit of, again, stretching our thinking and stopping and going, what, is, what do we mean when we talk about God's strength? What is that exactly? And if we really stop to consider it, we find out something. God's strength, his strength is unique. It's unique because God alone is omnipotent. That's the theological term. God is omnipotent. In other words, he has all power. And so let's stop for a moment and consider God's strength. We're going to seek his strength. We're going to look at that for a moment and go, what does that mean? So again, God's omnipotence, what is that? God is able to do all of his holy will. God exercises complete power over his creation and rules as sovereign. That's God's strength. He rules over all. And we see that affirmed in several places in scripture. Uh, Jeremiah 32 says, Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for you. We find the same thing in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 19. And looking at them, Jesus said to them, With people, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. 
And so we think about that and go, okay, well, so if God's all powerful, how does that look? Well, think about it in light of creation. John chapter one, all things came into being through him. Speaking of God, speaking of the Lord Jesus. And apart from him, nothing has come into being. Colossians echoes that in Colossians one, for by him, Jesus, all things were created both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He's omnipotent. He's all powerful. His omnipotence doesn't just relate to creation, though. We can also look at it in relation to, to, to preservation. And, and what does God do here? Again, speaking of Jesus, the book of Hebrews says, and he is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, God's nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus holds all things together. We should think about this. The fact that our molecules right now are not just splintering apart in 18 gazillion different directions. There's a reason for that. Jesus right now is actively holding the universe together. Colossians will say that as well. He is before all things. And in him, notice, all things hold together. But this doesn't just relate to creation and preservation. It also beautifully relates to redemption. In Romans chapter 1, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Describing God's power in, in, in redemption, Ephesians says this, And what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might. And so when we think about God's power in these ways, it, it, it just, it stuns us. Because his power is so unlike ours, isn't it? Man, just this past week I saw the limitations of my power. Because I got sick, people. I got sick. By the way, the older I get, the longer I get sick. Isn't that weird? <laughs> Used to be a 24-hour deal, man. 24 hours, I'm done. And then it became a 48-hour deal. Now it's like a 72-hour deal. You know? But um, really, what do we have power over? When you really stop and think about it, what is it that we have power over? Well, I mean, let's get real specific. We have control over our thoughts, sometimes. <laughs> okay, yeah. Um, we, we have control over the voluntary muscles in our body. There's a bunch of involuntary muscles you have no control over. Like you can't, you know, I'm going to just stop beating my heart for a moment, one second, you know. I mean, you can't, you can't do that. There's a lot of muscles that are doing things you have no control over. We're oftentimes dependent upon means or other things to produce the effect we, did, we want. I mean, a simple way to look at it, you're in, you're in the backyard and you're trimming the hedges, right? What do you got? You got the hedge. You're not going to just go, hedges be trimmed, snap your fingers, boom, they're done. You can't do that. You need stuff to do stuff. God doesn't. God is all-powerful. He accomplishes his will 
without any means in between. Jesus showed that whenever, oftentimes when he would uh, work miracles. He didn't, you know, shout some incantation when he had to, when he decided to still the raging storm. He just said, peace be still. And so God has utter and total command over the entire universe. I love how A.W. Tozer puts it in this wonderful book called Knowledge of the Holy. Here's how he puts it. He says, since he, God, has at his command all the power in the universe, the Lord God omnipotent can do anything as easily as anything else. All of his acts are done without effort. He expends no energy that must be replenished. His self-sufficiency makes it unnecessary for him to look outside of himself for a renewal of strength. All the power required to do, all that he wills to do, lies in undiminished fullness in his own infinite being. You know what this means when you think of creation? That means God spoke the universe into existence effortlessly. That's our God. And so how do we respond? Certainly, we should be in awe. We should tremble. At the same time, we should be relieved because this God who is all-powerful is also the God who is good. What a horror that would be if God was all-powerful and not good. And by the way, God is not good in terms of he fits someone else's standard of goodness. No, God himself is the standard of goodness in his very being. The only reason we even have a notion of what goodness is, is because he is good. And you know what else that means? It means you can trust him. You can trust him. I don't know what you're facing right now. I look at this room and I see people from all walks of life. Some are, some are certainly enjoying the blessings and graces of God. Others are going through trials right now. Some are facing things they've never had to face before ever. Here's what I can tell you though. Wherever you're at right now, you can trust him. Nothing is too hard for God. And in light of these things, we can give thanks, can't we? This is a good reason to give thanks. So again, back to Psalm 105, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples. We need to pursue that personally, knowing him, seeking him. And if you've never come to him, if you're here today and that's never been uh, what you've done in your life, the call and the invitation to you now is to turn to him. 
We've all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. All of us here are in desperate need. We're, We're all spiritual beggars before God. And God isn't saying, yeah, well, if you, if you clean yourself up, if you kind of get your act together, so to speak, spiritually, then you can earn my acceptance. That's not what God does. God also doesn't take sin and just kind of sweep it under the rug and pretend like it's not a big deal. Because he's holy. And so sin is a big deal. We are separated from God by our sin. But what God did is he provided a way to, to come to him and to be completely cleansed. He did so by he himself coming down to earth and living the life. Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the God-man, he lived the life we could never live and he died the death that we deserved. So you can trust him today. And in doing so, you can receive a gift of righteousness that comes from him, not from you. And in doing so, your sins are then placed upon Jesus. God's justice is vindicated. God's mercy is extended all at the same time in the same place on the cross. And the call to you is believe. Trust him. And you can do that right now. Admit that you're a sinner and receive God's cleansing in Jesus by faith. But we, we need to thank God for, for certainly for who he is. And, and in doing so, we need to pursue him and pursue him personally in knowing him. If you do know him, this means you're all about seeking him regularly. And by the way, if you're not seeking him regularly and knowing him regularly, you realize something, you're seeking other stuff, right? You really are. Because we're built to seek. We're like built, we're just, we're seekers. That's what we do. We're always after something. Have you noticed that? For those of you who are a little older, remember when you were younger and you thought, hey, by when, I, when I get this, then it's going to be blank. And then you got it. And then you go, oh, well, when I get this, then it's going to, and it could be a career thing, it could be a job thing, it could be a possession thing, I don't know what it is. And we realized, wait, all this stuff I'm seeking after, it doesn't matter. Because you're not made for that, you're made for him, but you're continually seeking We need to seek and pursue God personally. It's not, again, it's not just this abstract notion of who God is, but it's coming to him by faith. And what what does God tell us? He tells us, seek the Lord and he will be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and thoughts and let him turn to the Lord or return to the Lord and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon and when we do that, we become grateful. But we grow in gratitude, not, not only when we pursue God personally, but secondly, also when we rest in God's grip. When we rest in God's grip. And we find this in, in Philippians chapter 3. It's a beautiful, I love this section of Philippians. It's really, it's about joy. But Paul's describing this walk with God, and he says in, in Philippians 3.12, not that I've already obtained it, or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which I was also laid hold of by Christ Jesus. And he goes on. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And, and there's a lot in there. We don't have time to go into all this today, but I want to focus on one fascinating phrase. Notice, if you look there at the end of verse 12, he says, 
I want to lay hold of that for which I was also laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Isn't that interesting? I want to grab onto Jesus. I want to hold on to Jesus. I don't want to let go. Why? It's not because if I let go, then all is lost. No, it's because, look at the end of verse 12, that which I also was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Christ has laid hold of me. That's the point. I'm in his grip, so I want to hold on to him. And that's, that's a stunning thought, really. Um, you think about that. It, it's a, it's a uh, taking hold of something because you've been taken hold of. And, and really, that, that is the gospel, isn't it? That God has rescued sinners. We receive that by faith. That's the gospel. That's the good news. God's laid hold of you. Hold on to him. And, and, and we've been laid hold of by Christ, and we rejoice in that. Uh, there's a beautiful phrase in Romans chapter 3 where it says, For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Uh, Paul's being as emphatic as he can be here. You cannot be saved by you doing a bunch of religious stuff. No, you are, you, and, and notice Paul says, we maintain. So uh, Paul, in, in, throughout Romans, he's bringing forward an argument, and he's actually probably thinking back to his work throughout the ancient world as he went from place to place to preach, and he'd get different opposition from different folks. And so here he is saying, we maintain, we're holding on to, in the midst of the fire, in the midst of the opposition, in the midst of the storm, saying a whole bunch of other things, we're saying, no, we hold on to, we maintain that man is justified or declared righteous by God. Declared righteous by faith, by trusting God. And then, super emphatic, apart from works of the law. So if, if works of the law are way over here, as far as we can go, Paul's saying works of the law are there, justified by faith is way over there, and we are maintaining the distance, the distinction. Those two things don't go together. Justification, declared righteous by God, happens apart from works of the law. And so when you hold on to that, we start to realize, wait a minute. What God's done is, is this stunning, incredible new thing. And, and we're in his grip. Again, he's laid hold of us. He's got us. If you're in Jesus, you need to rest in that. I, I love... Uh, Something that Milton Vincent wrote in a book called The Gospel Primer. He's reflecting on this idea and he says this, The gospel encourages me to rest in my righteous standing with God. A standing with Christ himself has accomplished and always maintains for me. I never have to do a moment's labor to gain or maintain my justified status before God. Freed from the burden of such a task... I now can put my energies into enjoying God, pursuing holiness, and ministering God's amazing grace to others. That's the way we see resting in God's grip. Is that something to give thanks for? God has declared you innocent of your sins. If you're in Jesus, if you've trusted in Christ, you have that standing. 
He's pronounced you righteous. But notice, he pronounced you righteous with the very righteousness of Jesus. Do we really grasp what that means? Think about it. God has allowed his future and present wrath against you to be completely paid for by Jesus on the cross. He bore all of it on the cross for you. Is that a good reason to give thanks? Because of Jesus' work on the cross and because you are in him, believer, God now has only love and compassion and the deepest affection for you. There is no wrath in his heart towards you at all in any way, shape, or form. It's all been placed on Jesus. God always looks at you in Christ. He treats you with gracious favor. He's working all things together for your good. Even hard things, even, even, even agonizing trials, even persistent trials. He has a purpose for you through them. And so he takes trials and he actually overrides them for the purpose of, of making them good unto you. God, God's heart towards you is filled with fatherly compassion. And yes, yes, the Lord disciplines those he loves, but it's not wrath. It's discipline that you would grow in obedience. It's discipline that you would learn to repent. And he calls you to confess your sins to him that he might show his gracious, forgiving love. The love that he's had in his heart for you the entire time. And you might think, well, what's the difference between wrath and discipline? Well, there's a massive difference. Wrath is God meting out his judgment in, 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 in bringing about his justice. Discipline is for the purpose of maturing you because he loves you. Some of you here are parents. You know what that's like. All of you here are kids. You probably know what that's like. But that's what God does. He sees our sin. He's grieved by our sin. But, but, but even part of that grief that he has for us in that is that in those moments, we're not receiving the fullness of his love for us in that time. And so in his love as a loving father, he will discipline us because he's for us. But in light of this, again, Resting in his grip. Can we, we, it's so hard to even imagine trying to let go. He's got us regardless, right? We've been laid hold of, now we're laying hold of him. Sometimes we, we just do that. We, we, will, we will grab the wrong thing. In, in 1990, there was a 26-year-old man who robbed a bank at gunpoint in Ottawa, Canada. And the young man was named Danny Simpson, and he was desperate for money. And so he made away with about $6,000 or so. And of course, he was apprehended by the police and on his arrest. The gun that he used to confiscate the money he used to rob the, the place was confiscated by the police. And so he went to jail for six years. But get this, later on, they found out that the gun he was using at the time, 
they discovered that it was not a typical handgun. In fact, it was a very unique semi-automatic pistol, one of only 100 made by the Ross Rifle Company. And so the pistol was actually worth $100,000. 20 times the amount he stole from the bank. So if he'd only known what he held in his hand, he wouldn't have gotten into this mess. The question is, do you know what you have in your hands when you're gripping on to Jesus? Or better yet, do you know who has you in his hand? We need to be those who grow in gratitude, not only as we pursue God personally and as we rest in God's grip, but lastly also as we walk in God's wisdom. We're going to grow in gratitude as we walk in God's wisdom. We, we have to learn to do that because our tendency, frankly, is just not to be wise. I think the entire book of Ecclesiastes is worth reading several times because we see there the view of, of wisdom that God gives us. Ecclesiastes is all about the frustrating, disheartening, even maddening enigmas of our life. And yet, that everyday life under the sun, as, as, as Ecclesiastes would say, that life under the sun is really being used by God for those who are in Jesus to establish hope for life beyond everyday life, life above the sun. And so as Ecclesiastes talks about, you know, this, this idea of, you know, the waters from the lakes, they rove into the rivers and then they go into the sea and it's never ending. It's just ongoing. And so is life. Never ending cycle. And uh, you, can, you, can, you can work hard for all these different things, and yet, bottom line is, you're going to die. Bottom line is, you're not going to be remembered. No one's going to remember you. You're not going to hold on to your things. They're going to be gone. Someone else is going to be in that house that you built. Someone else is going to be probably uh, driving that super expensive car if you have one of those. If not, your car is going to be recycled and made into a toothbrush later. Whatever. The point is, it doesn't last. It just doesn't last. And you think about it, this book written by Solomon, you know, 3,000 years ago, is so applicable to our lives today in the Bay Area in 2023. But that key phrase, life under the sun. In other words, life not above. Not heaven, not the, the place of God, but life here on earth. It can become so consuming. And so, and so we find that, you know, these frustrating things happen in life and, and and we're, we find ourselves going, why? And that's what happens. When we, don't, when we don't live in wisdom, we get caught up in life under the sun, don't we? You turn on the news. Man, life under the sun. This, that, the other. Internationally, nationally, locally. It's a mess. That's life under the sun. And then we get caught up in it. We get frustrated. And we're going, man, why is it this way? It shouldn't be this way. And it's true. You're right. It shouldn't be. That's, we live in a broken world. That's the problem. But Ecclesiastes says it so beautifully, doesn't it? It says this, Behold, I found only this, that God made men upright, but they have sought out many devices. Wow! That's it! <laughs> That's the problem. 
Every news headline of this year is summarized in this verse. Every news headline from the next year and the year next. And the year, it, it's all summarized by that verse. And by the way, every news headline from last year, the, in the previous year and before that, summarized by this verse. God made the world and people beautiful. We've sought out sin. We said, thanks God for the stuff you made, but we just don't want you. We'd rather have your blessings than you. So just leave them at the door if you would and just go away. And yet, you know, it's funny because as Solomon even writes Ecclesiastes, he doesn't just complain. Um, he actually brings us into that, man, life under the sun is terrible. And then and there's all these different ways in which it's futile. You know, a vanity of vanities is what is the theme, right? All of it's striving after wind. You ever try to catch the wind before? Have fun with that. It's not going to happen. You're going to just be grasping with nothing. And he says, that's life under the sun. But then we also see toward the end of the book, as he wraps it up, because he kind of subversively shows us the futility of life under the sun, and then he brings us to life above the sun. And then he shows us how to live life under the sun in light of life above the sun. And so in chapter 11, verse 9, for example, Rejoice, young man, during your childhood. Let your heart be pleasant during the days of young manhood, and follow the impulses of the heart and the desires of your eyes. I still read that sometimes people go, wait a minute, is that in the Bible? Yeah, it is. But look at the last line. Yet no, God will bring you to judgment for all these things. I love that. Are there desires? Good, pursue them. The problem isn't desire. Sometimes we go, oh, that's, the problem is you have a desire for that. But if you have no desire for it, if you don't like it at all, if it just kind of brings like a, a numb deadness to your brain when you consider it, then it must be God's will for your life. No. God designed you a certain way. He's made you a certain way. He's given you gifts. He's given you uh, a, a proclivity to be able to excel in certain areas. Follow those things. And yet, no. God will bring you to judgment. But again, that's, that's walking with wisdom in a fallen world. As opposed to expecting the fallen world to be God's world now. Brothers and sisters, that is one of the just the biggest tragedies of our current climate right now. A bunch of people clamoring after this whole thing. Let's make it now what we want it to be because it's all about us. As opposed to seeing it from God's vantage point. No, Jesus' kingdom, he does reign now. He is reigning now. But he's also returning to establish his kingdom. He's inaugurated it when he came. He will consummate it when he returns. And in the meantime, we are living in the already not yetness of his plan. I love how Ecclesiastes concludes it. In conclusion, when all has been heard, or the conclusion when all has been heard, is fear God and keep his commandments. Because this applies to every person. That's wisdom in life under the sun. And that's how we need to learn to walk because when we do that, it brings us to that place of gratitude. Why? Because we stop grumbling about all the stuff that's happening around us as if it's supposed to be, uh, I don't know, this beautiful heaven on earth right now kind of thing. 
I mean, we, we, get, we get upset about it. We get mad about it. We demand it. But things, things don't go that way. And God does that for a reason. Because he's got a better plan. He's got a plan when he returns, when he defeats evil, finally, completely, when the devil himself is thrown into the lake of fire, when there's a new heavens and a new earth, when every tear is wiped away and there is no more death because death, the final enemy, is defeated. When we live now today in light of that, that's when we're walking in God's wisdom. When we take the long view. And that is a really good reason to be thankful. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would help us to grow in gratitude, help us to, to really personally walk with you, yearn for you, seek after you, that we would rest in your full grip and hold upon us, and that we would learn to walk in wisdom, even in evil days, especially in evil days, with your perspective and anticipating your return. Help us to be lights. Thank you for all that we've been able to celebrate thus far. And we would pray, Lord, that you would cause us to grow in, in, in exhibiting a thankfulness to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.